This is an ABC podcast. Kim Crotty has two sons, Otto and Arlen. They're teenagers now, but when they were little boys, Kim was sent to jail, to Her Majesty's prison, Dartmoor. Ever since 1806, the huge granite walls of this prison have loomed over the surrounding countryside. And inside those stone walls, while serving his term, Kim missed his boys terribly. He especially missed bedtime, that tender moment of the day when the busyness goes quiet and the house stills, and you snuggle up close to your kids and read them stories before kissing them goodnight. There was no way Kim could do that from prison. So he found another way to reach his sons through making stories of his own. Hi, Kim. Hi, Sarah. Kim. <laughs> Thank you for a lovely introduction. <laughs> Kim, I want to begin your story in the UK. Uh, you'd grown up in country Western Australia and after an unhappy stint in the army, took yourself off to London with your girlfriend, Beth, where you started working as a stage and production manager in theatre. And that was your job when your two sons were born. But you and Beth were having a rough patch in your relationship and she moved away to Bristol with your sons and you wanted to be able to move there and live nearby to your kids. But to do that, you had to find a new way of making money. What did you decide to do? Um, well, I had a conversation with a, with a friend of mine who had a house and it turns out this house was um, just a few streets away from where Beth and the boys were living and so I'd spoken about it with him, the idea that I had, that he was open to. So I, in the end, I, I gave my notice at the Playhouse and moved to Bristol and set up a cannabis grow house. Um, so that's not seemed... the career development step that, that necessarily makes logical sense here, Kim. <laughs> set up a cannabis uh, grow house. Well, unpack that uh, for me a yeah, little bit. Were you, were you a I mean, cannabis were smoker at the time? Uh, occasionally, yeah. I mean, not a not a great history of cannabis use, but but certainly rec recreationally and sometimes. Um, so it was a it was a commercial operation. It was, I mean, the idea and and the plan was that it would, um, you know, solve a number of financial issues, but also mean that I could be right there for my for my kids and have all the time in the world for them. Did you think uh, or struggle with the legal aspects of 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 this? Was that something that was on your mind before you began? I guess when I, when I left the army, I still sort of, I suppose, resented authority or didn't, didn't like it. Um, I didn't have any issue at all with the, with the legal ramifications. Uh, I, I tried to mitigate all the risks. I did a lot of planning. I did a... It was a very calculated... It was a very low-key operation. Um, I mean, it was quite a large scale, but very low-key. So... Uh, I tried to I tried to treat it as another job, just like just like the head of the stage department at the playhouse. I, I, I wrote a schedule. I I had a small crew of people that would that would help me at key times, and I just tried to cover all my bases and and predict what was going to happen. What did the house <laughs> look like inside? Describe it for me. Well, downstairs was just like any other house. It was like a so it's end of terrace house in Bristol. Um, so downstairs was the living room, kitchen, and bathroom. So it looked like any other house. Upstairs was a different story. One of the bedrooms was a was one of the grow rooms that I'd divided into two. So I had two grow rooms in, in one bedroom and a third grow room up in the loft. 
and a, a utilities room. The, another bedroom was a utilities room for the extraction and the fresh air intake and just a general area to repot and replant and do lots of other things. My friend and I had a number of connections, so we had a, a plumber and electrician come in and, and do the job to convert this you know, residential terrace house into an indoor market garden. Um, <laughs> what was the, the atmosphere like inside? What did it feel like to go up those stairs from the regular terrace house into this cannabis grow house? Well, this might be controversial, Sarah, but, um, but I loved it. You know, this is a this is a, a warm, lively, oxygen-rich environment. It just was everything about it was good. It was a nice place to be. England was very cold, so you know, it was always twenty-four degrees and full sun in my grow rooms. Um, so whenever I'd get a bit down or a bit homesick for West Australian beaches, I'd be sitting up in the grow room with a six-pack of beer and my shorts and sunglasses, catching a tan. My friends, that if I hadn't seen them for a while, they would remark that I looked like I'd been on holiday somewhere, somewhere sunny off to Spain or Portugal, but uh, it was just me catching some rays. <laughs> but it was really positive, like a, there's, a, there's a kind of rhythm to, the, to the, the growing cycle, and I'm sure anyone that's a farmer or has worked in agriculture or a nursery will, will, will know exactly what I'm talking about. Were you also selling cannabis from that house, or how did that whole side of, of the operations work? Uh, yeah, this is you know one of the biggest risks. In, in addition to the the legal risk, is the the risk of exposure. So I had uh, I had three grow rooms and I had three clients, and I would basically just sell wholesale one client per grow room, and that was it. Whatever I produced, I would just we'd weigh it and agree on the price, and um, and then it would be gone. Because I mean, you know, there's 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 a lot of a lot of uh, nonsense you hear about about the black market and about um, drug production and dealing, and not all of it is like the gangsters or you see on the movies and that kind of stuff. So I never did business with anybody that I didn't know and like, and I never and I would refuse to do business with anybody who was kind of a professional or a semi gangster or involved in anything heavy. I didn't want that kind of those kind of people in my life. And I didn't want any any exposure to sort of hardcore criminal elements. You know, this was, I was proud of, you know, this is the other controversial bit. I was proud of what I did and, and proud of what I created and, and the product that I made. It was, um, of course, though, illegal, which you knew. Were you, how scared were you of exposure? I mean, say the neighbours, were you trying to conceal activities consciously from, from other people in the street? Yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm a good neighbour, you know, I'm friendly and chatty and helpful and polite. But I would always have always have a kind of a cover story planned for, for you know, sometimes I'm unloading boxes of, of supplies into the house and I, w- I would have a, a cover story as to why I was doing or what I was doing uh, and, and just chatting with the neighbours and people in that cul-de-sac. I suppose I was lucky when I first moved in when we started work on the house, there was I didn't have any neighbours. But you know the other the other thing about the house is that it's a living it's kind of like a living breathing thing like there's the there's the hum of all the ballast units from the grow lights and there's the the hum of the extraction fans and the shifting of air it was really noticeable or for me at least and I was concerned that the neighbors would notice this noise and wonder what it was once you'd established the the production system, if you like, and, mm-hmm. and had those systems in place, did it feel like it was kind of offering you that work-life balance that you were wanting in terms of time with your sons? 
it really did, Sarah. Like, I, like you know, I'd never known such freedom. You know, freedom to write my own schedule, to, to make time for for the things that I love to do, for the for the people that I loved being with, for my kids, and also financial. I'd say financial freedom, but that comes with strings attached because it's complicated dealing with large amounts of cash. You know, it's it's difficult. Did you think about the future? Like, did you just imagine this would go on indefinitely? Oh, no, absolutely not. It was, um, you know, a couple of years would have been great um, and I was going to reassess the reassess where we were at after two years. Um, but it was always just a short-term thing. I treated it like a job. Uh, but it didn't work out like that. <laughs> take me, take me to the moment when police hammered on your door. Mm. Um, well, it was really bad timing for me. I had three and a half kilos of weed sitting on my bed. I had 103 plants upstairs. And I was really exhausted because, you know, I'd just been through the harvesting period and working through the night to get stuff done. And it was about 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night when there's this almighty thump on the front door. And, and as soon as I heard it, my stomach just lurched. Who else would knock like that? Um, and so there's, you know, sort of moments of... You know, you run through your options. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to start destroying evidence. I'm supposed to try and escape. I'm supposed to try and get away. But I just, I was just sort of hypnotised <laughs> and kind of watching myself like like in an out-of-body experience. And I just, I, you know, I couldn't think. I couldn't do anything. I was just drawn towards this door, drawn by the inevitability of it all, you know? You know, you make these plans. You tell yourself it's going to be okay. You mitigate all the risks and, and you, you, know, you try and approach this professionally and, but then um, suddenly it's all very real and there's no escape from the nightmare. <laughs> what happened when you opened the door? Well, sort of in dialogue through the closed door, I think um, you know, the police had established that you know, I was home alone and, and that I wasn't a significant threat to them because I can imagine what it's like for, for these teams of um, you know, specialised task forces that raid people's houses two or three times a week. And some of the places they go into must be pretty awful and pretty terrifying. So three or four large, very large men come into the house and, and they're looking for threats. You know, they're, they're, they're concerned about their safety and security, which I can understand. So you have no choice but to sort of get out of their way and be small while they determine the level of risk. But then sort of, you know, within a few minutes, Sarah, I noticed them visibly relax. They all kind of breathed that sigh of relief because they, they were going to get to go home tonight. No one was going to the hospital. There wasn't going to be any, you know, major incidents. It was just another grow house that they had to now sort out. So what did they do with you? Well, they wanted me to stay downstairs and, uh, you know, in the custody of one of the officers while they went upstairs and, and determined what they were looking at. But I said to them that I, I didn't really trust them and because I was concerned they might plant something. Um, so I insisted on going with them. What, what are they going to plant on you? <laughs> Kim, you've got a grow house full of marijuana. What are you worried they're going to plant? I don't know. It seemed like a, it seemed like a thing I should have said. It's like when they were bashing on the door and I asked, do you have a warrant? And they just, like, I can imagine the guy shaking his head and laughing at me like, mate, we don't need one. <laughs> we're, we're coming in whether you want us to or not. Like, <laughs> um, so... Um, the officer in charge, the sergeant, um, agreed to come upstairs and we, you know, it was really interesting to see him walking around and assess the house and the grow rooms and the 
and I, I took some pride in some of the things he said. It was like, wow, it's tidy in here. It's like, oh, this is a pretty good setup, this kind of stuff. You know, this is a man who's seen more grow houses than um, most people have had to hot dinners. And he was, um, <laughs> he was giving mine a gold star. <laughs> and he asked me sort of a lot of questions. But at this stage, once you're in custody, there's no point to be to be awful to anybody you know there's guys that are doing people that are doing their job so you kind of have to cooperate so I was happy to to talk him through because I understood you know what he needed to do in order to to do his job and satisfy his concerns were you panicking though Kim on the inside oh, I was were you scared? terrified absolutely I was terrified absolutely you know I managed to shoot Beth a text saying police here uh because you know this is this is despite all your plans you're now you're totally powerless. You are in custody. You have been caught with all of the evidence. And I'm not silly. I did a bit of research and I, and I knew that potentially it was going to be six years before I got to go home again. Um, but there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of, there was a kind of relief to it as well, you know, that all of this was over, the stress and the, and the, and the fear and the tension and the, you know, the duality. Because as much as I loved what I was doing, Sarah, I was always conscious of the fact that I could never share it with my children. I was always saddened by the fact that this was something I could never share with my sons. So I was glad it was over in a way. Once your day in court came, Kim, what did the judge say to you? He said that I was... Because, <laughs> again, you know, I'm sure the judge in the district court has heard it all before and, and seen a lot of cases like mine. And, um, and he said I was very naive and very foolish to think that I could get away with this and that this was going to solve my problems, not create more of them. And then he sentenced me to two years and, and that was the end of that chapter of my life. Where were you first sent after you were sentenced? Um, I was in HMP Bristol for three or four weeks, which is right in the middle of Bristol City. It's pretty awful because... The initial process of uh, the initial processing of new intake of prisoners, they don't know who they're receiving, so they put everybody together. So you're in you're in a really overcrowded wing, two up in a cell, and just everybody's thrown together. And it was just it's just so hectic. There's um all kinds of people in there for all kinds of things. There's people with drug dependencies, and it's a very extremely fast paced and high pressure environment. In many regards, because of my army experience, it was quite familiar to me, you know, this, this, this hyper-masculine environment, and it reminded me very much of army barracks. But it was just so crazy. Just, it, was a it was a real shock to me. I think it's a real shock for anyone that goes in there. What are the noises Especially, like? What do you remember about the sounds of Bristol um, Prison? Uh, it, was, it was just incredible, because every cell has a television, and I, I don't watch television, I don't like it, I find it shouty enough. So every cell has a television blaring and then there's, and then there's hundreds of people in the cell. Uh, and it's a big empty concrete space, so there's a lot of reverberation. And, and for anybody with sensory issues, you know, this is the stuff of nightmares. It's just this constant noise, indeterminate noise, and people everywhere and so much going on that you can't understand because uh, it's an alien environment. What had you told your sons about what was happening to you? Well, I was quite lucky in a lot of ways, Sarah, because after the after my arrest and the interview that I, that I did, because you know I'm I'm a well-spoken white guy, the police just let me sign my bail form and let me go. You know, if I was black or if, or English as a second language, they would have they, they just would have never have let me out on bail with no conditions. So they so they let me go. So there was a, a couple of months at home 
after I was arrested where I knew I was going to go to jail. That was The question was for how long, but I, at least I got a couple of months with my wife and kids before I went to jail. And I thought about just telling them that I was going away on a really big job because they were used to me working long hours at the theatre or gigs. They would take me away for days. Uh, so I thought about lying to them and hoping that I could get out of this without without sort of telling them the truth. But, um, you know, I decided that they deserved better than that and I just couldn't bring myself to, to lie to them and sustain that lie for years. They were only so young. So what words did you use? How did you explain what was happening? Well, I started with the bad news first, that I was, that I was going to jail and that they weren't going to see me for a while, which was difficult for them to grasp because, you know, even though they were only two and four years old at the time, they were already familiar with the narratives that only bad people go to jail and that, you know, you only go to jail for murdering somebody or, or, for, or for stealing someone's stuff. And they, they struggled to, to sit with this idea that their dad was a bad person and had done bad things. So they had a lot of questions, like, what had I done? Why was it illegal? Um, this kind of thing. And so I, I had to find a way to explain to my children, you know, age-appropriately what, um, what I was doing because they already knew that I loved gardening and had green thumbs. I explained to them that I grew a type of flowers that was worth a lot of money, and but it was illegal, and this was my business, and this is what I'd been doing for six or seven months, and, and decided that I would let them lead the questions, and I would answer all of them as, as honestly and openly as I could. At the time, it was really difficult, and there was a lot of... I got a lot of <laughs> unsolicited advice from from my family and friends telling me that I was doing the wrong thing by, by telling my kids the truth about this and that I, was, that I was ruining their lives by explaining to them so young that, that I wasn't this godlike figure, that I was always right and knew everything, that I was making mistakes and getting things wrong. And, uh, because kids are honest. They are, they are they're honest and, and, and straight up front, or well, my kids were at least. So, so <laughs> did you tell them it was a mistake? Is that how you phrased it? Well, I, I talked about the, the complicated nature of that because I told them how much I loved it, but that it was a mistake because, because I, I was kidding myself about the risk and, and what was really at stake because, you know, all of the plans that I'd made, all the risks that I thought I had covered and, and had taken care of, I hadn't extended that and I, logically I should have extended that to the, the risks for them. So you'd managed to have these conversations before you were sentenced, but then you are mm. in this environment in, in, in Bristol jail, first off. Mm. What was it like the first time that, that Beth and the boys came to visit you there in jail? Well, when I first got sent down, Sarah, I was terrified. I was terrified. I was a sort of mid-30s guy who'd had a lot of life experience, so you can imagine what it's like for for young children to go into this kind of institution and you know they were just terrified I don't even I don't even know what the word is for them and I was really touched by the fact that these two young people would 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 walk into a situation like that walk into that institution just to see me be searched and you know have the sniffer dogs go over them and just to come and see their dad what was the the environment like where you met them? What was the setup? Could you touch one another? Um, no, in the visiting room, the, the prisoners are seated at the at the tables, table and chairs, sort of bolted to the floor, 
And the prisoners, um, we have to keep your hands on the table and visible at all times. You're not allowed to hug or touch or kiss. Um, so the boys came, you know, when they spotted me, they came running through between the tables and jumped on me and hugged me. And, and I couldn't help it, you know. I had to hug them as well. And then you sort of screw comes over and tells you to sit down and had to explain to the kids that they need to sit down and I have to stay in my seat and not, not allowed to take my hands off the table otherwise I'll make them go home and they won't be allowed to come again so, and it was awful it was awful Sarah it was like we just never felt so far away from them as, as sitting them sitting there at the visiting table do you remember what um, you talked about no I don't even know it just seemed like a second you know just it's just awful, and, and that's when the, the the real gravity of of what I'd done really sort of really sort of hit me. This is when you know I started unraveling um, because I just to realise that not only had I put myself in this situation, but I'd put my two young sons in this situation, and the stories the stories that I'd told myself and that I'd let myself believe that led me to that place where were impacting on them so much. And the visits were just awful. What about the goodbyes? I've spoken to other people at prison and, and it seems that it's the goodbye moment is almost the worst. Yeah, this is the worst of it. And I just, you know, because the kids are like, they just don't want to go. They hold on and they would just hold on to the furniture with everything their little hands could, could, could squeeze as tight as they could and just refuse to leave. And they're begging their mum, please, please mum, can we stay with dad? And the screws come over and tell them to, tell them to leave and would give Beth a couple of warnings, but eventually, I think that first time even, the screws had to step in and sort of pull the kids off the chairs and off me, and it was just awful. And then, if, you know, as they're being led out down the, out, of the, out of the visiting room, we're talking concrete corridors, and so even when the doors close behind them, I can still hear them screaming and crying as they go down the concrete corridor. And because of the because of the sort of environment, there's always noise. You never you never hear that sound disappear. And so my, my mind, I was constantly searching for that sound, and I could hear it everywhere I went. I could hear this. I could hear my kids calling out for me. I could hear them screaming and crying, and and it just seemed that this sound haunted me everywhere in the jail. Um, and 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 I was just devastated. I've ne- I'd ne- I've never been so low. Sarah, I just and that night, I'm not ashamed to, to to say that I cried for my kids then, and I like I'm crying for them again now, and I cried myself to sleep that night. Just uh, I was just devastated, and for their mum, the logistics of getting two small kids to to in, into the prison visiting room and then dealing with the you know the emotional fallout afterwards was a heavy toll on her. So this was the the life that you were leading in these early weeks. Where were you taken mm. one day then without warning? Uh, yeah, you get about 15 minutes notice. And um, a screw uh, came to my cell one morning and told me to pack my stuff, I'm leaving. And they don't say where. They just give you 15 minutes notice because they don't, I assume they don't want um, prisoners to be able to make plans. Uh, or um, have time to sort anything out before they leave. Um, so you you know you throw your stuff into some plastic bags and then you go downstairs and then put into a truck and you don't know where you're going or how long it's going to be there. And a few hours later, I began the induction process again at HMP Dartmoor, which is miles away from from anywhere in the UK. It's so far removed from even public transport. 
And it's that way deliberately, isn't it? It was originally established as a, a place yeah. to put high-risk mm. criminals, so there was nowhere for them to run. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, even if you could manage to escape from the prison, you'd have to survive the moors. Yeah, so it's, it's, it was really very remote and really quite frustrating to, to be there, even further away from, from my kids. Like, the whole, the whole weed-growing operation was supposed to bring us closer together, and it just did the exact opposite. Who was your cellmate first off in Dartmoor? Uh, it was a man named Jason. Jason's a, a black guy from London, and I'm embarrassed to say, and I'm ashamed to say now that I know Jason, that I was terrified of him because he was black, because he's taller than me, because he was clearly, like from the first moment I saw him in the holding cells when we got transferred to Dartmoor together, that it was clear that he'd been in before and, and knew the prison system well. And I was terrified, Sarah. I, uh, I didn't know who this guy was. And I, you know, I grew up in Western Australia and I'd spent a few years in London. And now I'm in a prison cell with um, somebody with, you know, complex issues and drug dependency. Um, ha- has had drug dependencies and, a, and an extensive criminal record. I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about him and I was absolutely terrified. So how did that change as you got to know him? Um, well, I realised that, that Jason was actually lovely and actually really wonderful human being who had struggled with a lot of issues and struggled with a lot of things and had definitely made some bad decisions and, and done some pretty terrible things. But I just, I just, couldn't, I just couldn't not see because there was just something in his face and in his eyes, and, you know, just this... It was like, a, uh, like a, a new kid in the playground, uncertain of stuff. He was just that lost little boy... That I, I recognised that from, from my sons, and I recognised it in myself, and um, and we actually became really good friends, and we still are today. But I had to do a lot of, you know, that, that first week because you're the first week in prison cell, or certainly in the UK, they keep you locked down in your cell under observations because the the wing staff want to know what you're like. They need to sort out your paperwork and stuff like that, so they just keep you in, under observations because they don't know anything about you. So we spent a, a week locked in a cell in Dartmoor, and I, I really got to know Jason. And we talked a lot about stuff, and I had to really um, reassess my opinions. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Kim, you were put in a cell with Jason. How did you find a spot in that wider prison system that, that you suddenly found yourself in? Well, a lot of that was thanks to Jason, you know. He really... I, I owe J, Jason an incredible debt of gratitude because, you know, he really helped me understand the prison system and how things work and the dynamics of, of, of the sort of this social organisation of the place. And, you know, he had a lot of friends, a lot of contacts and, and just knew how things worked. 
knew how to complain well. It's a very it's a it's a very good skill to have, Sarah, to be able to complain well. But but I was a foreign prisoner as well, so you know already I'm an outsider, so I, I'm sort of not accepted by the white English prisoners. Um, so most of my friends were black or Muslim. Um, I myself didn't really belong to any to any one particular group, but I could travel between them. So I, I, I learned how to code switch between um, the different social groups. Dartmoor Prison is a long way from Bristol. How hard was it for Beth and, and the boys to come and visit you in, in this new spot? Uh, uh, extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. Such a long way. Things were really financially difficult for Beth and the kids. So, you know, she started selling um, selling furniture and expensive household items to, to get money to pay bills and to travel to come and see me. It was really, really difficult for them in a lot of ways, Sarah, it was much easier for me because, you know, I have all my basic needs met um, and I have lots of time to read and think and, you know, process things. But, you know, for, for them, it was much more of a sentence and much harder for my wife and my kids than it was for me. What were you missing most, Kim, about your boys? Which part of your lives together was the, the sore spot while you were in jail? I was reading to them, Absolutely. I, I used to dream about it at night. Reading to them before bed was... Um, I enjoyed it and I loved it and it's something I'd done since... <laughs> since they were so young they couldn't even sit themselves up. They, you know, they, were, they couldn't sit unsupported but I'd be sitting there reading them a story. And I was really surprised that, that this was what I dreamt about. You know, I was just so devastated to be utterly cut off from them. So, I, you know, I was dreaming about reading to them at night... And, and, you know, young kids are terrible on the telephone and, and they can't write letters and things still weren't great between Beth and I. So even, you know, writing letters was difficult. It was wonderful what she did for them and what she did for me, what she did for us in order of in sort of holding our relationship together um, because she, I would write to the boys and she would read to them. And sort of these two things combined gave me the idea behind writing stories for them. Well, how did that start? First of all, how did you go about getting your hands on some felt tips to, to create? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I bought a pouch of tobacco. So this is, this is prison currency, yeah? Tobacco and cigarettes. So I bought a pouch of tobacco and I set off, this was in Bristol, I started this. I set off looking for, for coloured pencils or some textures. You know, and in, in my mind, I was, going to disc I was going to find these sort of pristine art, high, you know, art materials. <laughs> and it just, it just wasn't possible because they don't sell pencils or textures on the, on the canteen list. The only chance they were going to be in there is if they existed in there and had been there for a while and someone had left them there. Or, so I had to really search for them. And, um, uh, and I, I asked so many people and it was really weird, like, because it... <laughs> because you know, when you go up to somebody that you don't know, and you you're trying to assess what they're like and whether how they how they what they're going to think of you, um, and everybody assumes you're trying to find drugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because you, I tell them that I had tobacco that I wanted to trade, if they've got what I'm looking for, you know. And they just look at me like I was mad. Like you what? You want to trade a whole pouch of burn for like? For a packet of pencils, well, you're you're off your nut, mate. Um, this kind of stuff, and so many people just give you weird looks. And the other thing that I was worried about was like that that I would look like um, somebody who's you know a guy who's <laughs> who's um, 
in jail and looking to get laid. You know, excuse me, can you? I've got a pouch of tobacco here. Do you think maybe? <laughs> I didn't. I just didn't know what I what I looked like or how I was coming across because you know I'm I'm a bit strange. I'm a bit awkward sometimes and. But eventually I found it and it wasn't the, um, the fine art materials that I was searching for. It was literally five felt-tip textures that had been in prison for God knows how long. And, um, and the guy couldn't believe it. He thought I was, he, 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 he thought I was mental Like when, when he gave me these five coloured textures and I gave him a 50-gram pouch of tobacco and he just thought it was Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what did you create? What story did you create with these um, highly prized textures? <laughs> uh, well, I just sort of, I sat down and I'd, I'd never written a story before. I didn't know what I was doing. And I actually have Stephen Fry to thank for this because because the voice of Stephen Fry, I kid you not, Sarah, the voice of Stephen Fry came to me in a blinding flash because the kids and I used to watch a lot of cartoons and stuff on, on TV and Fry was doing a lot of children's narration for children's TV in the UK at the time. And the voice of Stephen Fry came into my head and narrated the story of Arlie Loves to Draw. And it, is, it was really short and it's straight to the point and I, and I still to this day... I, I puzzle it where this story came from because it's just so perfect. And I thank you, Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you wrote this little story for Arlen, your, your youngest I did. son. Did you illustrate it? How good, we, how good a drawer are you? I did. I drew these. Oh, no, I was, I was terrible. I still am. I, like, I, I've never been able to draw. I don't have the concentration for it. So I drew these stick figures of a little, a little Arlen and some toys and some friends and a, and a car and an aeroplane and, 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 you know, just the basics of the story that feature in the story. Uh, and then and then posted it off the next day. And what um, kind of reception did you get? They, they just loved it. They, um, Beth said she got sick of reading it. They just wanted more and more and more. Uh, and then uh, my other son, Otto, was like, hey, what about a story for me? So... <laughs> I wrote a story from him, but by this time Stephen Fry had left my head and I had to write it myself. And it was awful, Sarah. It was really terrible. Like that, that initial inspiration was was gone. That it's first a story was, book. was perfect. <laughs> yeah. And it was really awful. And when I read it back now, it, you know, it doesn't make sense. And I'm, I'm not clear about what goes on in the story or the relationship between Otto and the cheeky rascal. But it didn't matter. They loved it anyway. And I drew, you know, the, the pictures were even worse this time because I was trying to compensate for the story. <laughs> but it didn't matter. They just loved it. And, and Beth got sick of reading that one too and they just demanded more. And so how much this of was... your time were you spending <laughs> creating stories for your boys then? Well, I'm, I'm actually really grateful for this because it kind of became my primary focus. Um, because I, I hadn't anticipated that this would this would go on. I just I thought I'd, it would be nice to write them a story each, and then, you know, I just get on with it, get on with prison life, and make the best with what we've got. But they they wanted more, and I just and it was just so wonderful to feel connected to them again, to feel like that there was actually something good, because you know after getting locked up and the state of uh, the state of my marriage with Beth and the situation with the kids and I. I just felt like things might never be good again, and this was this was just something totally unexpected that was just so good and something that I could do from inside. So I had to try. I just couldn't. I couldn't. When they asked for more, I couldn't say no. I just had to keep. Had to keep doing it. And so I 
created, again, I created another production schedule. <laughs> um, and I would spend my weekdays sort of coming up with ideas and, and drafting, doing rough drafts of stories, and then um, write them out neatly on, um, on lined paper that I could, you know, had to buy lined paper. But I was stealing forms, prison forms, to draft on the back of them because they were blank. You know, I thought, well, if I'm locked up, I might as well em- embrace my inner, inner criminal. <laughs> so I'd go down and hang out, hang around outside the screws office, and when no one was looking, you know, I'd stuff loads of these forms up my shirt and and scurry back to my cell, and because the backs of them were blank, and I would I would write these stories and then write them out neatly on the lined paper, and then spend my weekends illustrating these stories for the kids. Um, and then on Monday morning, every morning. I just, I just couldn't let my kids down again, you know. I just, after everything that I'd, that uh, that had gone wrong and was, and everything that was bad, this was the one thing that seemed good, that that was good, and and seemed like it might connect us. So every Monday morning, I would post two stories to my kids. You, uh, you had another change of location, another unexpected change of location, Kim, when Officer Hill appeared in your cell <laughs> one day. What was his proposal? Well, he was an he was an immigration officer, so he wasn't wasn't an ordinary guard or screw in the prison. His job was to get rid of foreign prisoners because it's cheaper to deport them than it is to than to keep them in jail. You know, it costs forty five thousand pounds to keep a prisoner locked up in the UK, which is incredible because you know I, I never earned anywhere near close to forty five thousand pounds a year in the time I was working in the UK. But so his job was to deport foreign prisoners. So he came in and said, you've got to sign this now. And I wonder how many foreign prisoners or prisoners with English as a second language just did, and he got rid of them like that. But I'd done a bit of research and my my solicitor had advised me about this. And so eventually I did accept the deportation after talking it through with Beth and the boys. Um, So they deported me back to Australia. And as part of the facilitated return scheme, so they would put me back to Australia. There was no record of my of my conviction or my sentence. They actually paid me fifteen hundred pounds to get out of the UK. And what did it, what did it mean for Beth when you were having that conversation with her about her and the boys? What did she decide to do? Well, it was another another massive decision for her. You know, moving back to Australia was was a massive step because she never wanted to come back here, but she. We talked about it and she decided that that she would like to try again and put the family back together. So she moved back to Australia with the boys with the help from her parents who were, who were really wonderful and have been very supportive of her and of me for many years. So her parents helped her and the boys came back to Australia and then I followed a few months after. Tell me about that flight, Kim. Like how much security was there on the, on the English side when you boarded the plane? Well, again, you're taken to the airport in a prison van. You're not inside the building at Heathrow. You're kept in a sort of in the luggage department with with two prison guards as escorts. And then you put on the plane, and the and the and the cabin crew have your passport. And you're you know you board the plane last after everybody else is seated. And then there's a connecting flight to, uh, from Bangkok. So there was a security escort for me waiting at Bangkok Airport. And I had a bit of a panic attack in Bangkok Airport because I'd been locked up for a while and Bangkok was just so... Airport was so busy. There was just so much noise and so many people. 
all going in different directions, which was really weird. You know, having been in, inside for so long, everybody travels in the same direction and everybody does what they're told. And this was just totally crazy. And the sights and the smells and the sounds and the colours, it was just it was really difficult for me. Again, while waiting for the flight, I was kept in the security office. But when I got to Perth Airport, I was expecting... Uh, you know, reception by the federal police or WA police or somebody from the government to tell me we know what you've done and we're watching you. But there was just nobody. And I, it took me quite a while to, to build up the courage to, to step out of the airport because, because it had been a long time since I'd been allowed to open a door by myself. <laughs> but you were totally free to go. Uh, yeah, I stepped off the plane and, and when I did manage to summon the courage to step out of the airport, I was, I was free and clear, which was really, I found it really difficult, really strange. And, and, you know, the Perth sky was much, much bigger than I was expecting, than I remembered it being, and I really struggled with this wide open space and the sunlight and the, <laughs> um, and the outdoors. And, of course, mm. your, your little boys were, were there waiting uh, to meet you again, they what was that first in our new house. meeting like? Um, I still remember that them and Beth sitting on the front step of the house because my brother Glenn had a house, an empty house in Capel that um, he agreed to let, let us live in. They'd been living there a couple of months um, and they were sitting on the front step waiting for me and, and you know, before I even got out of the car, they, they saw me coming and they ran and hugged me and, and it was just... Just incredible, and, and just that brief moment of seeing them sitting on the steps, you know, it's literally half a world away from the last time I saw them, which was being dragged screaming down the steps at Dartmoor Prison Visiting Room. You know, it was really... It was just so wonderful after, after everything we'd been through to be, to, be, to be lucky enough for lots of reasons. Lucky enough because I'm white and my prison sentence was short and lucky enough to not fall for the trap of signing the deportation mm. with, without really looking into it and, and, and lots of reasons just to be lucky enough to be reunited with my kids again because this was really a happy ending for this story because I'm, a, I'm so aware that for so many men and for so many kids, you know, this going to prison doesn't have a happy ending. Even when you get out, it ruins your life after that. What did the boys ask you to do that first night back together? <laughs> uh, it was a really high energy day, but then after dinner, um, after dinner, I remember their little faces. Daddy, will you read us a story? And I was like, Oh my God, I'd absolutely I'd love to read you a story. And I was expecting, you know, to go in there and they'd choose a choose a story from their from a little bookshelf, you know, one of the children's stories that you know that you buy. Um, and they they. I can't remember if it was a plastic bag or a shoebox, and they tipped out all of my stories on the floor. And they were just so happy and so delighted, and there's this pile of stories, and I'd never seen all of them together in the one spot before. All four, There's 47 of them in this pile, and to see them sort of, you know, their little hands digging through it and, you know, reaching, holding one up in the air going, oh, yeah, this one's my favourite. Oh, what about the enormous Jocosaurus? Or, talking about these characters and... and and all of these stories and their favourites and just seeing them, just that moment of joy because there was the, it was wonderful, the initial meeting when I, at, the, on the, at the front door on the driveway. But this was really the, the, the reunion, the three of us together. And, and with these stories... Oh, I'm getting upset again. These, these stories, 
I started writing them desperately hoping that they would somehow keep us connected and they worked and then to see them, all of the stories there in a pile on the floor and, and to be there with my sons again was just just magical. So you, that, <laughs> that connection between you had been kept and you built a yeah. new life back in WA without really mm-hmm. telling people about this story of what had happened to you in the UK. How did that change? Um, well, it was like nine years. So for nine years I kept the secret. I didn't, have to, I didn't tell anybody. I wouldn't talk about it. Some people knew, of course, my family and, and my partner's family. Um, but again, I was really lucky because it was, I was a foreign prisoner and I didn't, I didn't have to declare because there's no record of it here in Australia. So I could get a police clearance. I could, I could have jobs and, and, and other positions that I have now because that wasn't the end of my story. You know, having been sent to prison didn't ruin my life like it does so many other people. But um, in 2019, I was invited by a friend of mine to to go to an artist residency hosted by the Bunbury Regional Entertainment Centre to meet a group of mentors and and talk about ideas for for potential theatre shows. So I thought this might be a good idea because I'd, I'd continued writing for my kids and for myself and I I have a collection of short stories and other works that I've written and my experience in theatre had has always been really positive for me really good so I was interested to go there and I, and I but I felt that I shouldn't I felt like an imposter and I, and also I had this dirty secret having having been involved in protracted criminal activity and having been arrested and sent to prison for it you know you feel you, there's a kind of you just feel like a, an imposter in the rest of society, that you'll always be judged whenever you mention this. And so when I went to this artist retreat, I didn't want to tell the truth about the stories that I'd wrote for my kids, and I didn't want to tell the truth about where I'd written them or why. Um, but over the weekend, um, the mentors that I was working with were really lovely and they encouraged me, made me feel in- encouraged and empowered to, to share this story with them, and it just kind of blew them away. And... They got really excited about the potential for this story. So it's pretty amazing. That mm. yeah, and you put these stories together in, in collaboration with other people. You transform them mm. into a play, The Smaller Stage. What, mm. did, what did your boys think about you making the play, telling <laughs> your story together to the world? Um, well, initially, when I, when I first spoke about it, because it took us two and a half years working on this production, for the first 12 months when I was talking about it with the boys, they didn't, they didn't believe me. So they kind of, they couldn't, they sort of, oh yeah, dad's making up stories again. <laughs> and again, like similarly with my sort of disbelief that there was a good story here to be told and that people would be interested in this or that anybody would be interested in, in the story of that time of our lives because, because it was really difficult, because it was mostly awful. Uh, and the boys, they also had that same reluctance. They were like, well, Dad, who's, who's going to care about this? Because they were bad times. And and a lot of the stories that I wrote, Sarah, you know, weren't good. A lot of them are just, you know, written by some desperate guy in prison. <laughs> and so, you know, they were, they were kind of concerned. But then when they re- met, met the rest of the team, the director, Matt... Edgerton, director and dramaturg, who helped me a great deal with writing the script for this, and Zoe Atkinson, the designer. It kind of became real for them when they met Matt and Zoe, and to hear Matt and Zoe 
explain to them why they think this is good? That kind of turned their point of view. Are they proud of you doing it now? Do you think the show's been on? It was part of the, the Perth Festival. How do they feel about, yes, about that story very, being shown absolutely to the public? Very proud of me now. And I'm really proud of them too because they were involved in the production. But, but, you know, it's been really wonderful for them, I think, to see the way this story and these stories have changed. You know, these are the stories of their childhood, these are the characters that they grew up with and their lived experience. To see something that's so wonderful come from those experiences that were so bad, I think is a crucial lesson for them to learn, for all young people to learn. So it's been really wonderful for them to be involved and to help me through this process because they've seen me crying into my keyboard trying to, you know, going back to times in my life and and parts of their lives that, that were awful and really disturbing and having to go, it's kind of like conducting your own autopsy, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this autobiographical work. Uh, so it's been very emotional for me and for them, but thoroughly worthwhile. And what kind of and reaction this, have they got and you got from the people in your life who didn't know about this, this story that you shared back in the UK? It's been, actually, it's been really positive. So the other reason I was really concerned about telling this story and and the theatre production sharing this widely is because of the experience that my kids had at school when everybody found out that I'd been growing cannabis and was now in jail. You know, it was just awful for them, the way it impacted them. You know, they got bullied at school. Their friends weren't allowed to play with them anymore. Other kids would steal stuff from um, from Otto because Dad wasn't around anymore. It's really awful. And so there was a little bit of... And I think they were concerned as well of what would happen when news of this story got around their school again and and got around in their community. But it's been really positive, actually. And one thing that really surprises me, Sarah, is that everybody that has come to see the play, or everybody that has been involved with this production, it it really touches them somehow. They really connect with it, it resonates with them, because everybody, it seems, has a story like this something that they shouldn't have done that they feel guilty about or or they understand the anxiety of separation from their children or from their loved ones or their parents when they were away found a creative way to tell them that that they'd loved them it's been really wonderful and i'm so glad that the three of us have been involved in this it's just been great i'm so happy for all of you that this is that mm. this is this point that the story has got to kim thank you so much for being my guest on conversations Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.